In the late 70s and 1980s, despite a burgeoning film career, she was a New York stage fixture, appearing on Broadway in Loose Ends, Present Laughter, and The Heidi Chronicles, and off-Broadway in The Woods, Landscape of the Body, and The Country Girl, among many others. On the West Coast, she's been seen in three hotels, reprising her New York role, Wendy Wasserstein's Third and Summer and Smoke, and she's come back to New York, first with A Body of Water off-Broadway, and now with God of Carnage on Broadway. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to meet and welcome Christine Lottie. Hello, thank you. God of Carnage certainly had a lot of acclaim with its first cast, and you are in the second cast, and I'm very specific to say that because it's one of those rare opportunities where you didn't just go in to replace someone. You were all new. Tell me about the rehearsal process for this play in light of the fact that patterns had been set both by the original Broadway company and indeed your director had done it with the company in London as well. The blocking originated in London. So the original Broadway company pretty much used that blocking with their own adjustments, of course. So we were given kind of the rough blocking. But other than that, it's completely our own production. And I certainly wouldn't have taken this job if there was going to be a kind of replacement value attached to it. I don't know how to do that. When I did Heidi Chronicles, it was the same situation. It was a completely new cast. And we had three weeks rehearsal. And the director at that time was Daniel Sullivan, said, let's completely rethink this. Of course, then Heidi Chronicles was Pulitzer Prize, Tony winning, all these awards that the production won. And I thought it was just incredible that Dan Sullivan said, sure, let's redo it, rethink it Hmm. Uh, when I came into it. And same with this. Um, Matthew Warchus cast four very, very different people to play these parts on purpose, I think, so that we would all bring a very different personal journey to these characters. Had you seen the show with either the London or the Broadway cast? I did. I saw the Broadway cast, their first preview. Oh. So it was a long, long time ago, and I have no memory at all because I my memory is kind of shot anyway, but <laughs> I certainly don't remember what Marsha did. And um, I remember at the time being blown away by everybody and uh, really, really loving these parts, uh, especially Veronica. But I intentionally did not go back. Um, some of the other cast members did during our rehearsal period, but I couldn't because I, I didn't want to hear Marsha's voice in my ear whatsoever. I wanted to completely create my own personal journey. Presumably, when you saw that first preview, you just went because you wanted to see the show. Were they already talking about recasting? Oh, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. I just went because I, I always – I come to New York once every few months when I – because I've been living in L.A. just to see theater, just to get my theater fixed. So I, I was on my list. Um, my friend Jeff Daniels was in it and uh, I thought, well, I'll check that one out. I haven't heard anything about that one. Huh. And so I was one of the first to see it and uh, I was blown away by it, as I said, and I left the theater. The first thing I did is call my agent and say, okay, I have to play this part. Huh. Someday, I don't know when, I don't know where, but some just put that on the back burner and track it because I really want to play this part. And then it happened, which is great. What appealed to you about the part? I loved – first of all, I love the humor. 
I loved her political activism, her passion for hope and her optimism for change. I, I really share that as, as an activist. Um, I, I loved her sense of being a mother. I have three kids of my own. Um, I love the writing. I thought it was just brilliant. Uh, it's my kind of comedy. It's the kind of comedy that is so grounded in reality that that's why it's funny. It's not like, you know, slapstick or little comic bits or jokes. It's really grounded in the most, the deepest emotional uh, place that you can go to. And the more real it is, the more painful it is for me, the funnier it is for the audience. When you say painful for me, do you mean painful for the character or how deep you go into it as an actress? Well, they're synonymous. The way I approach my work, the character is inside of me and I am inside of it. And we are one. And the emotional journey of the character is what I go through every night. Now, interestingly, it's a fast journey in the sense that it's essentially 90 minutes yeah. from from start to finish. You go through an awfully wide range yes. of emotions and actions. And I'm wondering, is it cathartic each time you do it? And do you come out clean or do you walk away at the end of this feeling, oh, my God, you know, I'm wiped. <laughs> I need to go home and cope with this. Uh, it's cathartic. Um, even though it ends in a rather bleak way, uh, kind of, to me, it's kind of the death of hope. And my character is without hope at the end. Um, not, I take that back. Not completely. There's hope to still carry on as a mother and a, a good mother to Camille and, and Henry. But, um, no, it's cathartic. I begin the, the play in my preparation the half hour before the curtain. I begin in a very, very, very um, deep, dark, um, painful place where I begin the journey. But by the end, uh, I, it is very cathartic, and I always feel like going out and and hanging out with friends and doing something. I, I feel very energized. People say, aren't you exhausted? And I, it's a good exhaustion. It's a kind of, hmm. as you said, cathartic. I have to ask, have your kids seen it? Yes. They what have. did your kids make of it? Um, I think the kids uh, – my kids are glad that that's not their mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, they didn't see any of you in, in the performance? Oh, they might have seen glimpses. Sure, sure. I mean I, I think the essential nature of Veronica, um, they've seen in me, that what I was talking about, that kind of passion and that kind of activism. Uh, but – no, certainly the bad behavior they haven't they haven't seen anything like that. <laughs> Although mm. I have behaved badly, of course, but not to the degree that these people do. Is it a show in which the audience response is consistent from night to night, or do you find different audiences responding differently? Because there are moments of such comedy, and there are moments of such, as you say, emotional depth and and darkness. And I'm wondering if. Everybody takes the seems to take the same ride if that's what you feel up on stage. Absolutely not. Every night is completely different. Uh, there are audiences who will laugh at everything. There are audiences who will laugh at very few things, but you feel like they're being in, they're taking a different ride. It's a little more emotional. There are there have been people that have come up that have been crying throughout the whole thing. I think it struck really close to home. 
um, too close to home in terms of their own marriages. Um, you know, it, it, uh, Matthew Warchus really directed this to, to not be a comedy. He really directed the sort of cataclysmic demise of two marriages. Um, and as I said, the emotional journey is very, very painful for the actors. I mm-hmm. mean, if you're doing it for doing it right, it's really, it's you know, it's a difficult emotional roller coaster. And um, some audiences find that hysterically funny. It's like what they're watching Candid Camera, and it's so funny because it's so real, and it's not them. Hmm. It's not happening to them. So that's a great cathartic kind of um, release. And other audience members do relate to it more, identify with it more, and therefore they can't laugh at it as easily. Mm-hmm. So Matthew always told us, um, and he's right, never to ever worry about not getting laughs or some audiences are, you know, oh, that was a sucky audience or that was a really responsive audience. And it's true. We do play, do the play the same, but it's undeniable that if there's a great raucous, you know, standing room only sold out audience and there that tsunami of laughter is coming at you in these waves it's it's very energizing and um really inspiring i find and i think there's also for audiences for this show for those who are drawn to it because they loved art and say okay another yasmina reza play um this is a case where, without going into detail about the ending, art truly ended with a punchline. Hmm. You know, it was a visual punchline, mm-hmm. but it was I a punchline. This goes somewhere much darker. So right. people who come in expecting the same kind of ride end up somewhere they're not expecting to go. Yes, I, th- I think, I, having not seen art, I can't really speak to that, but I will say for God of Carnage, the last uh, phone call to the daughter is, I think, I think it's pretty moving. Um, there's still some, um, some people laugh throughout it, but hmm. it's, it puts everything into a kind of perspective that is that has been lost. Suddenly, these people who have been behaving like really bratty children, you realize they have children and they must be you know, they must be responsible and mature and um, strong for these kids. Hmm. Somebody's got to be. In the process of rehearsing the show and then doing it every night, you all get reasonably physical with each other. Mm. How long did it take for there to be a comfort level with that and, and to be able to do it night after night? I think pretty quickly in rehearsal. I mean, we're all very physical actors. Um, one of the reasons I was attracted to this part, I forgot to mention, is the physical comedy. I, I've been dying to do something that is that releases my own sort of inner Lucille Ball. You know? um, so there's a lot of opportunity for that. I, and I, I, you know, I jump on top of Ken Stott. I'm much bigger than he is. Um, that's fun. I get to just kind of engulf him. Um, the struggle for the bottle and all those. I think it, it, it was actually pretty early on in rehearsal that we all felt a kind of trust and comfort level. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's go back and talk about uh, how you got into theater. You grew up in Birmingham, Michigan. 
Um, I read something about you played a tree <laughs> early on, which which for a tall woman, I don't know if you were already tall at that point. I was. But, I was but, but that was the great debut. You were a tree in, in grade school? Yes, I was a tree, I think, in sixth grade. And uh, I was tall even then. I was called the Jolly Green Giant because I had. I remember I had this green wool coat, and at that time that had just come out as sort of an advertising campaign for those. <laughs> Who was calling you this? Everybody. <laughs> Probably the boys I had crushes on. You know, hmm. much to my. <laughs> Well, as they say, then that probably meant they had crushes on you, but it was the only way they could express it. Maybe so. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I was a tree. And then uh, in junior high, I was in plays. In high school, I was in plays. And, you know, I would even put on plays in my um, basement. I remember in the neighborhood, I put up a rope and a sheet in the basement, and we would – that was our curtain – and we would – do uh, like our own version of karaoke. We would, you know, sing along to musicals, and we'd charge a dime to the neighbors. And so I was always kind of the theatrical one. I had some five brothers and sisters, and I was always the one putting on the shows. Now I find it interesting since you said you were doing karaoke to, to musicals. I don't think in looking over your career, I spotted one musical. <laughs> are, are you, do you not do musicals or you've never had the opportunity to do musicals since The Basement? Uh, I did one called The Zinger, Harry Chapin's The Zinger, and oh. I, I, up in Huntington Playhouse. Uh, and Beverly D'Angelo was in that and some other, Pat Benatar. So it was a pretty incredible cast. I played a sort of drug addict, um, backup singer. But that's, I think that's it for musicals. I'm, I want to do them, and I've really been negligent about studying, training my voice. I've done some singing lessons. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's in my future. I want to I do it. Okay. Back to the past. Yes. You went off to college at University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Was that specifically to study theater at that point? No, I I didn't really um, have a choice of colleges. It was in-state or nothing, you know. So I didn't really have a choice of going to, you know, New York or NYU or any sort of more performing arts colleges. Uh, Although I I did a lot of theater at U of M, I started out thinking I might be a translator at the the UN. Hmm. I loved languages and I spoke French pretty well. I loved it and I thought that would be pretty glamorous and fun. I get to travel and be an interpreter. Mm-hmm. But then I just, you know, that was, I don't know what, that lasted about half a semester. <laughs> and then I just did more and more theater and that was it. But I read that at the same time you described yourself as becoming uh, a hippie pretty quickly on getting to school. I did. After one semester, I joined a sorority for one semester and then dropped out immediately because I, w- I just had this 360-degree turn of uh, – or 180-degree, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just, um, just shed all that garbage of – sort of upper-middle-class suburban values, materialism, and became um, fascinated and um, kind of overwhelmed by the anti-war movement at the time. And University of Michigan was a real hotbed of radicalism in 1968 through 72, which is when I was there. And it was uh, an incredible time to be going to college. And, you know, you had, you'd have to be a real sort of, I don't know, 
working in the chem lab 24 hours a day. If you, in, or otherwise, you would have been swept up in this. It was mm-hmm. very easy to be a part of this movement that was um, permeating everywhere on campus. So, yeah, I would go to rehearsal, and then I would literally run to the various demonstrations that were going on. And I found my feminism there. I found my activism at the University of Michigan that I've never lost. Mm -hmm. Was there any overlap between the movement and theater? I mean, it was certainly a time when there was experimental theater going on. Were you doing conventional stuff in in the classwork or was any of that – did you have an opportunity to express those political views through any of the theater work? I did, yeah. We did did a theater in coffee houses in in Ann Arbor that were – that was sort of al- alternative theater. Um, whether we did actually any anti-war theater, I don't. I don't think so. But but certainly more alternative stuff we were doing. Yeah. Hmm. So when you got finished with school, did you look immediately to grad school, or did you look to do to try working first? No, I, I was. I tried out for Juilliard and didn't get into that. I tried out for um, Yale. I didn't get into that. And I think I thought that was it. Oh, was there any other? No, those were the two, I think. So I thought, well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll just uh, go do rep somewhere. So Florida State offered this f- MFA program. Not that I w- was interested in teaching, but I thought the second year was interesting because it was at an actual professional rep company, the Oslo. There's always been a relationship between yeah, the school so and the that, theater. Yeah, so that seemed like the logical way to go. I'd go right into a professional rep company. And um, at that time, I had no interest at all in doing uh, film or television. I was just a theater actress. Uh, but then I had a girlfriend who was living in New York, and my the acting training at Florida State was not great. I was doing a lot of pantomime, interestingly enough. And a lot of money in that. A lot of – a big future in yeah. pantomime. But it was really creative and it was great. And we, we performed in coffee houses and my boyfriend played the guitar and we did the mime show. And <laughs> Anyway, um, my a girlfriend lived in New York and she was going to a place called the Neighborhood Playhouse. And uh, that seemed really interesting to me and then – she convinced me that there were other places to study in New York other than Juilliard. And so I quit the program and moved to New York and studied with Uta Hagen oh. at, the, at uh, HP Studios. And then right after that, uh, I guess a year and a half after that, I went and studied with William Esper of the Neighborhood Playhouse. Not the actual Neighborhood Playhouse, but him, his mm. professional well, classes. We can't go by you having said you studied with Uta Hagen mm-hmm. without asking, you know, what what was that like? I mean, so many of us know her only from if we got to see her on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't do much film work, mm-hmm. but she was a pretty formidable figure. She was, what, yes. What did Uta Hagen impart to you? <laughs> Everything. I still have dreams about, you know, gathering up my props from my little studio cockroach-infested apartment on the Upper West Side and getting on the subway with all these props and going down to her acting class in the West Village for years and um, dreaming of that comment that she would make for the, the really good scene work. She'd say, no comment or no criticism or something. And that was mm-hmm. like, oh, my God. Um, 
she was phenomenal. I mean, the first, you had to audition for her class. Uh, and I think I, stud- I studied with um, Elizabeth Dillon first and William Hickey and Stephen Strimpel. There were various classes I took at HB. Mm-hmm. I even studied with Herbert Berghoff for a little while. Uh, and then I got into Uda's and that was the big, you know, that was the big coup. Right. And um, she was phenomenal. She was just just incredible. Uh, yeah. I I learned... I guess basically how to be as director proof as I could be. Meaning I I know how to break down a script. I know how to break down a script beat by beat. I know how to work find out what objectives are and obstacles and previous circumstances. All those things that you need to know not only as an actor but you have to know as a director. Mm-hmm. Um and I think if an actor has has that sort of technique that that real technical Technique, you can often be director proof if you are stuck with a director who is maybe not the most inspiring. If you know that stuff, then you're, you're going to be okay. But can that be a pitfall when you are working with a director who is very capable but has a different interpretation than you do? Oh no, not at all. Then, hmm. then you have a collaboration. At least you're, then that's fantastic. You, a director that speaks in terms of objectives and needs is a, a goldmine. Is is a godsend. There aren't a, surprisingly there aren't a lot out there. But a director who knows how to just talk about a character's needs, what they want to need in a scene is. Wow, hmm. <laughs> it's rare. But you, as an actor, of course, you have to work from that that perspective. Hmm. So, at the same time that you're taking these classes, are you auditioning? Are you doing showcases? What what else is going on? Yes, I'm doing a off, 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 off Broadway. A lot of I don't know, fifteen of them. Those shows where they paid, you know, a subway token, two subway tokens. That was anything your particularly unmemorable that we should know about. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> There was there were so many. I just remember these huge cockroaches climbing across. The, I would I would have to say climbing or trudging across the stage during the performances. Um, these this you know the theaters were pretty uh, well shady. <laughs> so you went through all of that. I did, I did. But then you know I did also worked at Circle Rep, which was an incredible uh, off off Broadway place, or maybe it was considered off Broadway. Do you remember Circle Rep? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I think – I don't remember the seating number, but I – you know, depending on where they were at that point right. in their growth, right. um, I couldn't say for sure. In looking back at your work, the first thing that tends to pop up as an early credit was that you worked at the public and you understudied in the original <laughs> production of Marco Polo Sings a Solo by John Guare, but you were understudying Madeline Kahn and at the time the not – extremely well-known, Sigourney Weaver. Yes. So what was the experience of understudying? Well, it was kind of horrific on one hand because I I, I, I never thought I would do that. It was like I did I, – I, and I only did it once. It's like being an extra, just once. Mm-hmm. Okay, I did it. I don't – I know I can't do that again. It's not for me. But it turned out that that experience was a fantastic time because the, all the other understudies – we had such a wonderful time. We would just meet and we would hang out and we'd have to hang out, I guess, for a half an hour before we could leave. So we had this fantastic bonding. Um, Larry Pine was one of them who remains a kind of 
wonderful acquaintance. Um, I think I also studied, understudied Ann Jackson. I think it was all three of them. Wow. Yeah. So there's a range. Yeah, I never went on. So I don't know. It was I barely remember. I just it was I loved John Guare so much. I ended up doing Landscape of the Body, um, and just think he's an incredible writer. So uh, yeah, that was my one and only understudy time. And then a couple of years later, you were back at the public in a David Mamet play. Right. The Two Woods. character, The Woods, not one of the ones for all of the revivals of Mamet, not one of the ones I think that's been looked at again recently. That's true. It was you yeah. and Chris Sarandon directed mm-hmm. by Ulu Grossbard, mm-hmm. certainly impressive. Um, that was – I assume it had been done in Chicago prior to being done there or was it completely new at that point? I think it had been done in Chicago but this was the New York premiere. As far as I know, yeah. So at that point, you and an actor on stage having the whole show on you, what was that? Was that the first time you really had that opportunity? Because in looking at some of the other shows you had done in that period, there were larger companies. That was that was the first two-character play, yeah. Um, I had done a play called um, Hooters by Ted Talley at Playwrights Horizons and – I think, yeah, that was a larger cast. That was probably... It wasn't much four. bigger, but it was four. four. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. it was four. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was... Uh, the Woods was a phenomenal break for me. And, um, I, yeah, that, that to me was, like, okay, I finally, I feel like I've got my New York roots now. Hmm. In that same year, we're talking about 1979 now, because we were talking about this earlier was the one time you were a replacement in a cast and said you'd never do it again because that's when you went into Loose Ends. That's right. I did replace in that. I remember loving it. I mean, it wasn't as obviously as creative as just being able to recreate a role, but I, I did find a way to to make it my own. And the part was so incredible. And working opposite Kevin Klein. That was incredible. And uh, I actually remember loving that. Hmm. So there you go. And Alan Schneider, was was he, when you went in, was was he still involved? Because, again, an extraordinary and legendary director. Yes, he, he was there a little bit. I think I, I remember being put in more by the stage manager on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your first Broadway show. Was it my first one? You're right. Okay, so Loose Ends was the first Broadway and then Division Street. Now, Division Street, the following year, by Steve Tezich, who's best known to many people for writing the screenplay for Breaking Away. Right. Um, again, I looked at the cast, among others, John Lithgow and Teresa Merritt, mm-hmm. did not have a long run. It's, it's a play that um, – and I know there have been occasional revivals of it. Um, can you just talk a little about that play? Because it's a playwright whose work I don't think we hear about much anymore. We don't. I, I love that play. Uh, and we were all kind of shocked that it didn't last. Um, I think it lasted only one week after the reviews came out, um, which is typical if it, if it gets panned. Uh, I loved doing it. I loved working with John Lithgow. Um, my character was really wacky she was it was really comedic she was uh she could only speak in song lyrics i think she was had 
taken so, oh, so many there's drugs. your musical credit there it is <laughs> <laughs> like a rapper early rapper yeah she she just spoke in, in song lyrics and she was very stoned out and um i think too many drugs or something <laughs> hmm. uh it was a really fun play to do hmm. a couple of years later also on broadway directed by George C. Scott in Present Laughter, Mm. along with two actors who were making their Broadway debuts, Nathan Lane and Kate Burton. Yes, I've heard of them. Yes. (laughs) But, I mean, they were brand new. But working with George C. Scott, both playing the lead and directing you, what was that like? He's, he's again, a famous and formidable figure. George uh, was complicated. Um, He was incredible to be on stage with. Uh, he was a, a great collabor- collaborator. Um, obviously, he you know he loved actors. I, I remember it being another kind of extraordinary experience. Um, George would have his bouts, you know, though he'd be gone for a few days and then back happy and healthy and fine and then disappear for you know he, he had his his ups and downs but overall hmm. i adored him i adored working with him uh his energy and and talent was phenomenal what was he like as a director in terms of working with other actors because he seems like such you know we have this vision of him as Patton and hmm. and all of those things only one time did he um kind of lose his temper and be kind of negative but I, I, all the other times I mean he was so encouraging for all of us to be to to bring it bring it on and, and we did we all I came up with so much behavior that was my my thrill of that part was just discovering all this wonderfully comedic behavior for this character and he welcomed all of it hmm Hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier you loved the work of John Guare, and in 84 at Second Stage, you got to do, as you mentioned, Landscape of the Body. Now, at that time, Second Stage's very clear mission was taking plays which had been produced previously, but perhaps <clears throat> not gotten a fair shake mm-hmm. first time out. So, what was what was going on with Landscape of the Body in terms of when you did it? Gary Sinise directed it? He did. Um, right as Steppenwolf was really breaking out. Mm-hmm. Um, going back into that material, and how much was John Guare involved in it? John Guare was not involved too much, as I hmm. recall. Um, he may have been with Gary, but I don't remember him being at rehearsal too much. Uh Gary was a, a a wonderful director, is a wonderful director. And one of the things that was so unusually wonderful about Gary was we would say, I would say to Gary, I don't understand this moment because it's, you know, it's John Guare and it's heady stuff. I don't know what's going on. And Gary would say, I don't know. <laughs> let's find out. Let's, let's find out. Hmm. Which I loved, and I, I've carried that on as a director myself. The most valuable thing a director can say sometimes is, I don't know, hmm. and really mean it, and really say, let's find out, without needing to control it or, or pretend that you know or needing to know everything ahead of time, but to really 
love an actor's contribution and welcome it so much that you you challenge an actor and to say try anything you want try everything go as far as you want go as deep as you want and let's discover this this let's ex- excavate this moment together like we're archaeologists trying to you know discover something precious and unique and alive and he he was i think maybe the I mean, I had worked with a lot of great directors, but he really made that clear. Interesting. Yeah. And again, at that point, still very a young director, yeah. a young actor who was still coming into his own. So that's interesting to yes. hear. Now, it looks like there's a period, 84 to 88 or so, where you were doing shows, some in New York, some in Los Angeles, New Haven, Williamstown – were you were you going for specific roles? Were you going simply because these are where things were offered to you? Because certainly your film career had already been well established and Justice for All and Swing Shift had all come in this period. But you're still going out and as I said, doing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in New Haven and, and uh, the lucky spot up at Williamstown and back to second stage for Little Murders and the Amundsen for Summer and Smoke. Was it the parts? Was it just to be on stage? Was it? It was, well, I mean... I'm a stage actress primarily, so to be offered Moon for the Misbegotten at Williamstown is a no-brainer. So is Summer and Smoke. So is Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. They're all dream, dream parts. So, I, yeah, I, I didn't think twice, really. I'm sure my agents went, oh, I don't know if you should go to regional theater and do this when you have this film career. But it was, to me, it was, I, I, I can't not do these parts. This is what I was, you know, why I, why I took this leap in the first place. So, hmm. um, and the, the lucky spot, that was Beth Henley, who was a friend and, and my husband had directed, um, a movie of hers, Miss Firecracker contest. And which you were in as well. Well, yeah. I, I had a moment. I had just <laughs> delivered my, my first child and I had a moment. I think I had one line, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So all those, those, um, Theater experiences, but because I, I had to do them. Hmm. Well, I I used the timeline because I wanted to come back to then your return to Broadway. You've spoken already about Heidi Chronicles, mm-hmm. and I've said before. Listeners of this program will certainly have heard me say this. I think people forget how groundbreaking Heidi Chronicles was in its day, both. For a female playwright, for a female character who did not have to choose the conventional way of being happy Mm -hmm. in her life, you succeeded Joan Allen. Mm -hmm. But again, you did have that opportunity to go in, as you have with God of Carnage, with a whole new company. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little about taking on that role at that time? And and if I remember correctly, David Hyde Pierce was in the company Mm -hmm. with you and Tony Shalhoub and some others. But but talk about playing Heidi, who at that moment was Mm. was a bit of a cultural icon. Mm. Well, uh, you know, that Wendy Wasserstein was my soul sister. I mean, in terms of her, uh, what she wanted for women, the way she wrote women just spoke to me in a a really profound way. Uh, I ended up doing... um, three of her 
her plays, one for television, An American Daughter, and uh, the two plays, Third and um, Heidi Chronicles. And to take that on was uh, a thrill beyond anything for me at that time uh, as an actress, as a feminist, as a woman. Uh, we we just completely rethought and rediscovered that play. And again, <clears throat> I just, in retrospect, it's just so audacious of me to say to Dan Sullivan, I'll do it, but I want to completely reblock and rethink and, and re-explore this play. And he was willing to do that. Hmm. And we did. It, we, in this case, unlike God of Carnage, we completely restaged it. I mean, we had to work within that set. Right. But we totally restaged it and, and you know, found other depths that the other original production hadn't. Do you can you talk a little about that? Did Dan ever suddenly in rehearsal say, "Huh, never went there the first time sure. around"? Sure. What, what do you What do you think were the qualities that that your company found in the show? Well, Wendy, I mean, first of all, I have nothing disparaging <laughs> to say about the original company because right. they were phenomenal. It won Pulitzer, Tony, Joan Allen, I think, won a Tony for it. I, I don't remember, but they were all phenomenal. But Wendy's, from my perspective, Wendy's work is um, deceptively easy, and the trap can be that you do it in a kind of um, a jokey kind of for the jokes, for the humor. It's very witty. You can easily ride the surface of her plays, but I, I've always been determined with her plays to to find a, a much deeper subtext. Sometimes it holds up. And sometimes it doesn't. But I was always determined to figure out what was underneath the banter. Hmm. For better or for worse. I mean, you know, as I said, some some of the scenes were just banter. But I was, at that time, really determined. And Dan was going along with me, for sure, encouraging it, to find... You know what is what was the subtext? Why why were these people bantering? What are they avoiding with their banter? You know what is the deeper thing that's undercurrent that's going on? So that was our mission, and I you know I don't know whether we succeeded or not, but I, it certainly gave for us the the new cast. It gave us a, a different you know journey to go on. And at that point, was Wendy at all involved in mm-hmm. rehearsals? So, so that's where you really connected with mm-hmm. her. So let's let's talk a little more about your relationship with Wendy mm-hmm. and her work, American Daughter, which was done for television, which had been done. Um, was was that a project that you had pursued? Was it something that Wendy said, you know, when it was coming together? I'd really like to think about Christine for this. How did mm-hmm. how did that come together? Um. I don't really remember. I'm sure I pursued it. I mean, I as soon as I heard that anything of Wendy's was going to be done for film or television, I'm sure I pursued it. Hmm. I don't remember exactly the, the right. casting uh, specifics of it. Yeah. Well, then let's move quickly to third because I read, and I hope it's correct, that that's a case of you really wanted to do that show and you you even actually pursued the rights mm-hmm. and were sort of shopping it yourself to mm-hmm. theaters. Mm-hmm. Had you done that before? 
with anything? Had you felt that passionately? I don't think so. No. There was a, a, a play from London that my um, agent had found, but I don't believe that predated third. I think okay. it might have been after. Anyway. So why third? Well, again, it was Wendy Wasserstein, and it was, in a way, it was this. It was the third chapter of this main character, started by Heidi, in different incarnations, certainly different characters. But there was a a kind of continuum and a through line between the three characters of Heidi and um, Lissa in American Daughter, and I'm forgetting the thirds character's name. Anyway. Um, the professor. The professor. <laughs> professor Jameson. Um, yes. Uh, and so I, it was just kind of a natural, um, inevitable uh, thing for me to take on. And Wendy welcomed it. I, I talked to Wendy about it. I, I went to see Third Here. And, um, of course, that was starring Diane Wiest. And it was wonderful. And I saw Wendy in, at intermission and she wasn't well, and I didn't realize she was so not well. And um, I didn't mention it. You know, it was like the big elephant in the room. I found out later through ver- from mutual friends that she was really, really sick at that time. But I did say, you know, I have to take this play and do it in L.A., right? She said, oh, please, you know, with my blessing. So that was... I, I got that from Wendy and then um, shopped it around and then the Geffen Theater chose to do it. What is it to be an actor with a project going to theaters saying, don't you want to do this? I mean, what what were the responses? I don't know how many places you went to before ultimately the, you know, the Geffen said yes. Maybe it was a short list. But that that's not – the uh, the average situation mm. where where an actor's calling theaters saying I've got this play mm-hmm. it's not an unknown play because it had already been mm-hmm. done in New York and I want to do it mm-hmm. well I have um, a good relationship with both the Geffen and um, the Mark Taper Forum in L A uh, which are the two primary places to work the Amundsen as well and. Uh, both of the directors, their creative directors, um, have said, you know, if you have something you are interested in doing, bring it to us. So they opened the door, and I, of course, went, okay, well, you'll be hearing from me. <laughs> and there were other, there were two other plays that I did actually shop around in L.A. and got turned down. So, you know, it happens. You <laughs> never know. It's 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 a crapshoot. So, having seen again. A very fine production of Third here in New York. What was the exploration of doing it for yourself in Los Angeles? Doing it for yourself—that's probably right. a bad phrase, but having the opportunity to do it yourself. Right. Um, I, again, I, I try to exorcise all memory of the original production so that we could start fresh. Um, it was a different director. Maria Myleaf and not Dan Sullivan. So I, I'm, I think, yeah, she did see the New York production, but um, she had she had many issues with it, and um, which in some cases we shared, and in some cases we didn't. But it was a, a it was a great collaboration. She really 
again, we really wanted to mine the depths of these characters. And some people think that Third is an unfinished play. I I don't share that um, opinion. I think Wendy finished it. And Wendy was not one to... I mean, people said that she died before she could really, you know, fix it. I, I, I don't think... I don't agree with that because Wendy was one to, um, in my experience, she didn't do a lot of rewriting. Mm-hmm. She would change a word or two. I remember when we did Heidi Chronicles, she changed a word in the final scene because I, or two words, because I was scared that the audiences were getting the message that, ah, now Heidi has a baby and everything's fine, that that was going to fulfill her. So by changing two words, I don't even remember what it was, mm-hmm. but I remember that was pretty significant that, you know, it had, again, it had won all these awards already, and she was willing to nudge it a little, massage it a little, so to make sure that the message was that Heidi was not completely fulfilled by just a baby, that that was a nice, wonderful thing, but that there were other areas of her life that she wanted. She had great potential to fulfill. Mm-hmm. So with third, the the comment you know, about people feeling it's unfinished, whether that was simply because of Wendy's untimely passing yeah. or people's reaction to the play. You know, do you feel it's finished because it was satisfying, fully satisfying to perform or simply because you believe Wendy was done with it? I, the prior, I, I, I don't know if Wendy was done. My, I'm guessing that she was, um, but I don't know the, the particulars of the last few, you know, months right. of her life. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, it certainly was a satisfying journey, com- a completed journey to play. Mm-hmm. Now, because we've been talking about Wendy Wasserstein's work, we've we've skipped a few things, and I want to come back around to Three Hotels, the John mm-hmm. Robin Bates play, which you did here in New York and in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I commented earlier on about when you did The Woods that it was your first two-character show. You're the only woman on stage. In three hotels, it's monologues. It's some people might be more familiar with Brian Friel's plays that use the same form, but Ron Rifkin had two monologues and you had one. Mm-hmm. What is it to have your entire experience in a play be yourself alone with a character, although there is another character that you are obviously aware of? what else is going on mm-hmm. because it's it's all you for however long that monologue takes. Mm-hmm. Very challenging. I mean, I'm one, I'm the kind of actor that I'm only as good as my fellow actor. I really depend on what they're giving me. I'm so locked into them moment to moment, which is the, you know, the Sandy Meisner kind of technique that I completely embrace so to be alone up there and to have to imagine the responses from whoever I'm talking to, whether it's – I can't remember in that monologue if it was a group of women, uh, if it was private moments. I think it might have been both. But to have to imagine responses is a 100,000 times more difficult than to actually look into someone's eye and get a response because, you know, for example, um, I bring up – Running on Empty, this the film I did with um, Sidney Lumet. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene, the pretty famous scene with my played by Stephen Hill, my father. I remember people saying, "Oh my God, you were 
you know, phenomenal. And truly, Stephen Hill, what he gave me is the reason I'm good in that scene. Hmm. Truly. I mean, that is, that's my perception of that scene, which I think is, is a great scene. But what that actor, and he might say the same thing, but for me, it was what he gave me. But you had someone to play against. Oh, yeah. You know, in that scene and yeah. in most plays, yes. you have someone to play against. Yes. So I'm just saying that yeah. it was – at first I had no interest in doing Three Hotels because of that because I really think I'm, – I'm, I'm not a big fan of going to plays that are monologues. I really love seeing interaction and seeing that hmm. life between people. But um, I did a reading of it and uh, really loved it and found it incredibly powerful and I love – Robbie Bates is writing. Hmm. Well, you must have come to love it because you agreed to do it again. I did, yes. Often when I talk to actors who've gotten to do a show more than once, I ask about you know what, what they might have found, what had changed. There was, if I have it correctly, a gap of a year and a half or two years between the two times you did that show. When you revisited it, Again, with Ron Rifkin, I believe. In both Richard Dreyfuss. Oh, okay. So you did. So there was a different actor playing mm-hmm. the other mm-hmm. character. But was there a new journey for you when you revisited that play? Since again, it was a monologue. Although there was someone else playing your husband in the other scenes. Definitely. I mean, you know, whatever personal journey I'm on um, is going to inform. Uh, the part I'm playing. So if it was a year and a half later, I know there was a had to be some other, you know, big drama going on in my life or some kind of learning of something. So it was going to inform the character. And, uh, and I pro- it was probably a deeper perfor- performance. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it had more humor. I, I don't know. I can't mm. remember. But it definitely was different. I, I wouldn't have done it if I was going to do it the same. Mm-hmm. Now... Again, to acknowledge that there's film and television work going on throughout all of this. Mm -hmm. We're focusing on the theater. Uh, I see that in 2002, you were one of the many members of the rotating cast of The Exonerated. Mm -hmm. Um, What drew you to that? Did that bring you back to your political roots from from college? Oh, yeah, definitely. And Bob Balaban's a friend. And um, it was great to come back to New York. I hadn't been to New York to do a play in forever. And I think it was just a week yeah. So, yeah, um, it was a very powerful experience, that play. And, you know, you didn't have to learn the lines. It was just... Right. And yeah. again, structured as monologues. Yes. You're, you're, doing, yeah. you're doing your own thing. And, you know, obviously the material is very different. But like love letters, in some ways you're playing, you're always playing out, not to right. anyone else. That's difficult. If I have it right... If we go, if we if we exclude the the short stint in, in the Exonerated, it was a good decade between Three Hotels and Third, in terms of yeah. stage work. Oh yeah, and that was just the way life and work took you. I assume not any saying. You know what? Not doing theater for a while. No, no. It was really what was the best job offer at the time. Mm-hmm. The most interesting. And then in terms of luring you back to New York, you said early on, you know, you like to come in and see shows. 
But um, outside of you know, you did the exonerated in two thousand two. It was two thousand eight when you did Lee Blessing's play, A Body of Water, at primary stages. And what was the impetus to a return to New York and and really commit to a run of a show and just to be be back here doing theater? Well, many variables. The play was fascinating. I had not a clue how to do it, which I, at this stage in my life, if, if something doesn't scare the, you know, the what out of me, <laughs> then I'm not really interested. It has to really challenge me. Um, and that really did. Um, did you see it? I've, I've read it. I did not oh, get to okay. see that production. It's, wow. To play someone with amnesia is just, which is basically what these characters have. Um, anyway, uh, that was challenging. But also Maria Myleaf directed it and um, someone else was attached to do it and they dropped out. So she called me and said, hey, do you want to come to New York and do a play in a week? <laughs> really? We start rehearsal in a week, yeah. Oh, start rehearsal in a week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Rehearsal. Um, also, it was um, – the schedule was such that I could go home. Um, they didn't have a Sunday performance or maybe I put that in my contract or something. <laughs> I was able to go home. I mean I have three kids so – uh, this was last year. Well, yeah, last fall, a year ago, last fall. And uh, my oldest is in college, but I, at that time my kids were 14, 15 years old. So I needed to go home a lot. There weren't a lot of their vacations overlapping, so I went home almost every weekend, and that made it bearable for me. Uh, God of Carnage schedule, of course, is the normal eight shows a week, so I can't go home. But the schedule happened to fall so that they could come Thanksgiving, they could come all of Christmas break, they're coming tomorrow for a long weekend. So it, it's not as, um, you know, it says, you know, I'm away from them for three and a half months, but it hasn't. it's not really worked out to mm-hmm. that because they're coming here a lot. Well, what's it like to be doing eight a week again? Because some people say, boy, they, you know, it's, it can be tough if you haven't done it for a while. I'm just starting to get into the groove of it. It is um it's very challenging. It's hmm. boot camp. You know, you don't really do much of anything else. If you you know, there's you have to really stay healthy and work out and eat right and no drinking and I mean it's really just just the the plays the thing and and um you know, I have a great professional ethic and I would do nothing to compromise my work ever. So I'm I'm really vigilant about, you know, staying as on um, sort of my top of my game hmm. as I can. Well, I would think with the – particularly with the physicality of this <laughs> oh, show, you yeah. really have to – you, you, you'll hurt yourself. Yeah, exactly. But eight shows a week is, is you know, it's kind of ridiculous. I can't <laughs> believe that, honestly, equity hasn't done something about that. But – you know, I shouldn't complain because I think about people doing big musicals like, you know, three-and-a-half-hour plays or musicals that are – they get out at 1130 and they do the, those twice a day. And then I think, well, I have nothing to complain about. Mine's an hour and a half and I'm home by, you know, 10 o'clock. Hmm. So you're doing God of Carnage. Uh, how long are you committed to the show for? Till the end of February. And then anything – Theater-wise, in, in the immediate offing or anything you're, you're, you'd like to be doing? If it's going to be theater, it'll be in L.A. because I don't want to leave my kids. They're, they're only home now another year and a half, so I want to be, be there. And, you know, thank God for video chat 
because I get to see them. I mean, that's a big deal, you know, hmm. being away from them. I get to do – like last night, I for two hours, I stayed up till 2 in the morning. Not my normal Spartan schedule, but I was doing homework with my <laughs> with my 16-year-old son, which I loved, just doing – correcting like silly grammar things on, huh. on an essay and going over it with him. And um, – I really miss, that's part of being a mom that I really miss. So getting to do that with video chat was fantastic. Hmm. But anyway, um, my my future plans will not be theater in New York for at least a year and a half. Well, we're glad we've got you here now. Thank you. And you continue, as you said, in God of Carnage through the end of February. Christine Lottie, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.